The interesting thing about Jesus is that he never claimed to be a teacher. He never claimed to just be a good moral teacher. He claimed to be God. And it is that claim that sets him apart. It's that claim that sets him apart. Because if he is in fact God, which we believe he is, then as God, he has the ability to say with certainty that there is one God and that there is only one way to that God, okay? If he is only a moral teacher, then that's like super exclusive. That's, that's like, ah, how can one teacher say that and, and all these other teachers say the other things? But if he is God, then he has the ability with certainty to say there is one God and there's only one way to God. Jesus doesn't say that he speaks the truth. He claims to be the embodiment of truth. He doesn't say he can give life. He tells us that he is the source of life itself. And he doesn't say he is one pathway to God. He claims he is the only way. Jesus is not exclusive because of who he lets in. He's exclusive about how you get in. See, it's, 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 it's a really important distinction here. Like anybody, anybody's welcome and anybody can come. Jesus makes it very clear that there are not multiple ways, there are not multiple paths, there are not multiple faiths, there are not multiple people who can get you to where you want to go. There is only one way. He's very exclusive about how you get to where you want to go. So we're in week two, and I think so much of the purpose and the passion for this series, at least from my perspective, comes because whether you realize it or not, uh, in 2021, there is actually a lot of speculation about who Jesus is. Uh, and, and actually, the speculation about who Jesus is is not entirely found within secular culture. That might surprise some of you. Some of the speculation, I, I think a fair amount of the speculation about who Jesus is, exists within the church as well. Uh, there, there, there's confusion. People say, oh, I, I think this is who Jesus is, or I think this is who Jesus is. And that's why we want to kind of step into the conversation. We want to make no mistake. We want to clearly define who Jesus is in this series. We want to walk out of here fully knowing who he really is. And to do that, we have to kind of step into the tension about Jesus. Because in culture, there is, I mean, just to admit, I mean, there is, there is a, a lot of tension that the name Jesus brings to any kind of conversation you have. You know, he is, without a doubt, one of the most controversial figures in all of history. He remains one of the most controversial figures today in culture. And, and what's amazing to me about Jesus is that he is also one of the most enduring figures in human history. You know, he, he, uh, whether you believe he is God or, or whether you believe that he uh, was just a good moral teacher or maybe, you know, some people maybe, maybe believe he, he uh, didn't even really exist. Regardless, really, of what your narrative is, narrative is about Jesus, we all would have to agree that the world just can't seem to get rid of the guy, right? That he has endured throughout history. He is still, like, talked about. He is still worshipped. He is, he is still a part of, of, uh, of society, a part of culture today. And that's, and that's, a, that's a really big deal. And, and so because of all of this, it just seems like everywhere we look, we notice that there are like lots of different people with lots of different opinions about who Jesus is, and lots of different thoughts about, about what he taught. Like, is that really what he meant, or did he really mean this? Like, did Jesus really say that? There's a lot of opinions on what his mission really was. Did he, did he really come to do that, or was there like this ulterior motive? Was there this other like sort of hidden thought 
you know, in Jesus when he came to do what he did. And so there's a lot of different thoughts. There's even a lot of opinions about what he should be called. You know, should, should he really be called God? Should we just call him Jesus, or should we really call him, you know, Jesus Christ? Like, what should he really be called? Is he really the Son of God? Uh, what is the name that Jesus should, should be given? And, uh, and so we kind of, kind of want to step into that here, here today. Uh, you may not know, some of you may know, uh, but some of you may not know uh, that, that there, is a, there is a very famous story uh, about Helen Keller uh, when she was 19 months old. She contracted an illness that left her both deaf and blind. Some of you may have heard this story, be familiar with, with who she is. But this resulted in her being unable to have any sort of meaningful communication until she was 10 years old. Her parents hired this teacher uh, who, was in, who, who was instructed to teach her how to, uh, how to communicate. And so this teacher taught her how to spell out or trace out the letters of the alphabet on on the palm of her hand using her finger. And so at 10 years old, she was finally able to have meaningful communication, finally able to communicate what she was thinking. It's crazy, right? It's a big deal. And, uh, and so as she began to be able to communicate, her parents hired a, a minister to come and teach her religious studies, re- teach her religious instruction. And so as they began to, to communicate and, and he began to teach her about God and about Jesus, this is what Helen Keller said to her her uh, religious instructor. She said, I knew about God before you told me, only I didn't know his name. I didn't know his name. So what she was saying, she's really getting out here, she's saying, like, like I've, I've, already, I've already met this guy. Like, I already know who he is. Like, I've already experienced him. I've already felt his presence. I've already known. I already knew he was with me. I just didn't know what he was called. I didn't know what his name was. And so in this series, we're, we're really learning that all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus gives himself some pretty shocking names. In fact, repeatedly, he makes some really shocking claims about himself. You know, over and over and over, he uses the phrase, I am, to refer to himself. Now, that may not seem like a very big deal to you on the surface until you realize that the name I am was the name that God gave himself in the Old Testament during a conversation with Moses. It's, it's kind of a big deal. Jesus grew up in a Jewish-dominant culture. Jewish-dominant society. He grew up in Nazareth, right? He grew up in Israel. And so the story of Moses having this conversation with God in the Old Testament where God says, I am who I am, is, is a story that the, that the nation of Israel has, has known, I mean, forever. And so in the first century when Jesus is going around and he is ministering and he is, he is doing incredible signs and wonders and, 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 and attracting a crowd, he's using uh, very liberally, it seems like, in the Gospel of John, the phrase, I am. Now, I am was a very holy, very revered name in, in the first century Israel. No one would have used this name like accidentally. They wouldn't have just been like, oh man, whoops, I, I didn't mean to... To say that, it, it certainly wouldn't have been a phrase that they just, uh, you know, kind of accidentally, you know, used or sort of slipped out of their mouth. And sometimes, uh, you know, when we look at the surface of some of these I am statements of Jesus, we can, we can begin to think, well, maybe he just didn't realize what he was saying. You know, like maybe some of us, you know, because we'd go, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that, you know, I didn't mean what I, what I said. Maybe we could, we try to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt and say, well, maybe he just sort of slipped up there. Maybe that was like his Freudian slip or whatever, you know. Um, but I really... I'm here today to contend that, that Jesus made no mistake. In fact, in fact, I believe that, that Jesus intentionally 
used the phrase I am to refer to himself so that he could make the claim that he was the God of the Old Testament. Was no no mistake on Jesus' part. And so in this series, we want to look closely at the different times when Jesus famously uses the phrase I am to refer to himself. Now, you know what I love about these statements of Jesus all throughout the Gospel of John? You know what I love about them? I love that he doesn't say I was. I love that he says I am. I love that he uses present tense language. He doesn't say like I was the bread of life. He doesn't say I was the light of the world. He doesn't say I was the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say I was the way. Jesus says I am. He uses present tense language. He is He's he's using present tense language while he's talking to those in the first century, but he is using this same language as he speaks to us today in present tense language because Jesus is looking to invade our present tense. He's looking to impact your life and my life in the present tense. He's not, he he, he didn't just rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. He He wasn't just the bread of life for people back then. He remains in the present tense, all of these things. And so in this series, we want, to talk about, we want to talk about this. We want to talk about Jesus in the present tense. We, 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 like, like Josh mentioned, like we could really call this series Jesus According to Jesus because I think it's, it's, it's really important to kind of get through the noise of what people say about Jesus and the speculation you know, that is out there about who Jesus is and just let him speak for himself, Jesus according to Jesus, right? So if you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this thought. Jesus got in trouble not only for what he did, but more, for, more so for what he said. Jesus got in trouble not only for what he did, but more so for what he said. You know, as you read the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus didn't get into serious trouble because he fed some people who were hungry. Jesus got into serious trouble because he claimed to be the bread of life. Jesus, Jesus well, I mean, they didn't like what he did, but he didn't really get into serious trouble because he healed somebody who was sick or because he raised a dead person back to life, Jesus got into serious trouble because he claimed to be the resurrection and the life, because he claimed to have power over death. So it was his claims of deity, his claims that he was the God of the Old Testament that would ultimately cost him his life. And so in this series, if you're taking notes, we want to get our minds around not just what Jesus did, but who he is, who Jesus is. And so today I want to kind of push into really the second I am statement. Um, it's, It's one of my favorites. Um, and it's in John 14, 6. This is one of my all-time favorite verses uh, in the Bible. John 14, 6, Jesus says this. He says, I am, okay? It's a claim of deity right there. He is using that Old Testament name right there. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except through me. These aren't my words. These are Jesus' words, Okay? I'm not declaring this about Jesus. This is something he's declaring about himself, all right? I'm not just getting up here with an agenda saying, hey, like, like, here, like Jesus is the only way, everybody. Like, these are his words. They're not my words. This is Jesus according to Jesus. Dallas Willard famously says this. He says, it's very difficult to have the truth but not hurt anybody with it. Very difficult. Very difficult to have the truth and not offend somebody with it. And this scripture, if you could just pop it back up there on the screen for a second, like, like is, is one of the most controversial. And, and as, as you look in at, at the kind of the narrative of Jesus throughout history, people tend to gravitate towards Jesus because of like what he did, the, the, the kindness of Jesus, how he treated people. 
people struggle with Jesus when they, when they consider his claims, what he said about himself. And this is one of those exclusive claims Jesus makes about himself that people struggle with. And the truth tends to hurt. Truth tends to offend. It tends to make us go, I, I, what? Did he just say? Look at this thought with me. Jesus doesn't say that he speaks the truth. He claims to be the embodiment of truth. Okay, let me, let's back up. Jesus doesn't say that he speaks the truth. He claims to be the embodiment of truth. He doesn't say he can give life. He tells us that he is the source of life itself. And he doesn't say he is one pathway to God. He claims he is the only way. The only way. Now, most of the time we tend to love exclusive things, don't we? Most of the time we love exclusive things. So, you know, we, we love, you know, that, that, that restaurant that most people don't know about. We call it our secret spot. Anybody got a secret spot? You're just, you're like, like, they have to be a good friend in, in order for you to take them to your secret spot. Like, you don't want the word to get out that this place is as good as it is. And so you're like, we've got this spot, but like, we've got to hang a few times before I'm just going to let you go to my secret spot. We love experiencing things that most people don't experience. We, we do. We, we, we love, uh, you know, the exclusive clubs, exclusive resorts, exclusive vacation destinations. We love exclusive things. We really love the exclusive offers, don't we, that come to our inbox containing offers that are just for members, like members only exclusive offer. We love exclusive things most of the time. It's interesting that even though we love exclusive things, we don't tend to like exclusion or exclusive things when it comes to religion. And so when Jesus makes an exclusive claim about himself, it can make some of us uncomfortable. Now, it for sure makes people uncomfortable in, in secular culture, but it can, it can even make a lot of us who are Jesus people uncomfortable when we entertain the exclusive claims of Jesus as well. So we're like, I, really? Like, that seems very, <laughs> very, very exclusive. Okay, so um, here's the deal. And even though we believe this claim about Jesus, like, I think, I think most will say, yeah, I, we be I believe he is the way or the only way. Even though we believe this exclusive claim, uh, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable enough that we certainly aren't going to lead with this when we're talking to like, people about religion or God or whatever. It's not going to be like our, our lead in, in terms of like, a conversation we have with people. We're going to kind of keep that one over here. And maybe, maybe that'll enter in you know, uh, when they start talking about like, all these other ways. And we're like, yeah, actually, eh, John 14, 6 says. So um, this is the tension most people have with Jesus. Not what he did, but what he said. Rabbi Shmuley famously says this. So he, Rabbi Shmuley, if you don't know who he is, he's, he's, a, he's a Jewish rabbi. Uh, I've, I've seen him debate more than once, Dr. Michael Brown. You can watch these amazing debates on YouTube between him and, and Dr. Michael Brown. And Rabbi Shmuley says this. He says, I am absolutely against any religion that says that one faith is superior uh, to another. I don't see how this is any different than spiritual racism. It is a way of saying that we are closer to God than you, and that's what leads to hatred. Rabbi Shmuley. So, now, Rabbi Shmuley would be absolutely correct. He, he would be absolutely correct in this statement if Jesus was simply one religious teacher out of countless others. If, that, if that's all who he was, if he was just a, a religious teacher out of, out of like all these other religious te teachers that have existed throughout history, Rabbi Shmuley would be 100% correct here. 
Because how can one religious teacher claim to be the only one worth following? How, how, can, how can somebody do that? But the thing here that's interesting, and, and the reason why we're wanting to push into this, this, this series is because we want to we make no mistake. We want to clearly define who Jesus is. And the interesting thing about Jesus is that he never claimed to be a teacher. He never claimed to just be a good moral teacher. He claimed to be God. And it is that claim that sets him apart. It's that claim that sets him apart. Because if he is, in fact, God, which we believe he is, then as God, he has the ability to say with certainty that there is one God and that there is only one way to that God. Okay? If he is only a moral teacher, then that's, like, super exclusive. That's, that's like, I, how can one teacher say that and, and all these other teachers say the other things? But if he is God, then he has the ability with certainty to say there is one God and there's only one way to God. That's where we get hung up. And that's where a lot of secular culture struggles with Jesus. It's not so much what he did or how he treated people. It's what he claimed about himself. So let me just soften all of this here for a minute, okay? Uh, you look like you need it. So let me just soften it <laughs> for a minute, okay? Even though we firmly believe in the exclusivity of Jesus, make no mistake, he is the only way. The language of this particular I am statement in John 14, 6, in my opinion, seems to be much more of an invitation rather than an exclusion. It's really key because I think Jesus is, I think Jesus is communicating here like, hey, you know, have you heard of this exclusive party? <laughs> have you heard of this exclusive dinner, this exclusive restaurant? Like, hey, let me take you to it. Let, let, let me show you where it's at. Have you heard about this, this like invite-only place? Let me, let me get you there. I'm going to tell you how to get there. And I just firmly believe that Jesus wants to include us, not exclude us. Now, when you hear this, this claim, this exclusive claim of Jesus in John 14, 6, like it can, it can, we can struggle with it. The, the, what we hear when it enters our ears can, can, can be very difficult because our modern ears can instead hear things like, man, that's exclusive. That's, that's legalistic. That's offensive. You know, we, we, can, we can immediately hear that. And that's what a lot of people hear when they, they see this I am statement of Jesus. This is not a statement where Jesus is saying, you know, you're getting kicked out. It's, it's a statement of you're getting invited in. It's not a statement of like, uh, like yeah, we're, 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 we're just, yeah, ooh, you're out, you're out, you're out, you're out, you're in, okay, you're in. It's not one of these types of statements. Jesus is inviting people in. If you're taking notes today, I want you to catch this thought. Jesus is not exclusive because of who he lets in. He's exclusive about how you get in. It's, the, it's, 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 it's a really important distinction here. Like anybody, anybody's welcome, and anybody can come. But Jesus makes it very clear that there are not multiple ways, there are not multiple paths, there are not multiple faiths, there, there, there are not multiple people who can get you to where you want to go. There is only one way. He's very exclusive about how you get to where you want to go. Now, that's really all I'm wanting to, to say today about this. Um, all I want to do for the rest of our time is just give you the context of this statement. And I want to give you one final thought at the end. And I think if I give you this thought now, it won't, it won't hit us like I think it, it should. And so I want to just take the rest of the time to just give you the context of this I am statement in John 14, 6. This I am statement comes at a meal that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. Now, that's an important distinction. 
because we can sometimes assume that Jesus is making this you know, shocking claim about himself from a street corner with a bullhorn in his hand. Hey, listen up, everybody. I'm the way, right? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. We can, we can kind of get that if we don't understand the context. But the context is, 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 you know, that's not what happens. Like Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples, and it's not just any meal. It's a very specific meal that Jesus is having with his disciples. It's the Last Supper. It's the Last Supper. Now, an important note of that is that the events from John chapter 12 to John chapter 19 that's, that's a lot of scripture in the Gospel of John. All of the events in those chapters happen in the same week. It happens in the week in which all these, the week in which all these events happen is the week leading up to Passover. And just so you know, Passover is a pretty big deal. To us, it's really not. And to us, you know, as, as, as Americans, as Westerners, like we lose a lot of, of the nuance in Scripture. We lose a lot of, of, of things that, that are very cultural to, to Scripture and to first century Judaism, and, and, and we, we just lose it. It's not really our fault. We just don't get it. But Passover is a huge deal. It's a really, really big deal. It's, it's this meal. It's this festival. It's this celebration. And so the Passover is meant to remind the Jewish people of the time when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and he led them into the promised land. It's this, it's this set-aside time. Every year, they celebrate the Passover. And when they do, they remember when God brought them out of slavery, when he gave them this promised land, right? This, this is what Passover is. And specifically, they are remembering the last great miracle, the 10th plague, when God would release them out of slavery in Egypt, when he would lead them through the wilderness and, and across the Red Sea, ultimately culminating at Mount Sinai, where God would form a covenant with his people right there. They remember what happened. They remember the story. They remember when God took them from Egypt and brought them on this journey and took them to Mount Sinai, and it was there that he formed a covenant with his people. Now, if you were to study the covenant of the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, you would find that this covenant is historically viewed two ways. Two ways. Most theologians, you know, most historians believe that, that there's really two ways to view the covenant that God enacted with the people of Israel uh, out at Mount Sinai. I think both are true, actually, but, but one of them, they say, is, is more of like a king to his subjects, a king to his servants. It's, it's, it's the type of covenant that was enacted at Mount Sinai. The other uh, you know, type of covenant they, they, they many believe you know took place there was was more of like a marriage covenant, uh, and and actually both have a lot of truth to them. Exodus chapter six really tells us why the covenant between God and Israel is often viewed as a marriage covenant. I want you to look at these scriptures with me right here, uh, famous very famous scriptures in in the Jewish faith. Okay, uh, Exodus chapter six verses six and seven says God is speaking to Moses. He says, therefore, say to the Israelites. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Seven, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now, I told you that these verses are why so many believe that this covenant God enacted at Mount Sinai is really a marriage covenant. Exodus chapter 6 right here, these scriptures, is really viewed as God's proposal to Israel. This is God's proposal to Israel. 
these four promises right here when he says, I will bring you out, I will free you, I will redeem you, I will take you as my own people. In fact, these four promises eventually over time became the language of the Jewish wedding proposal. The Jewish wedding proposal followed these promises right here. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. This is a groom speaking to his bride. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. And what's interesting about that is not only did it become the, the, the language of, of the Jewish marriage proposal, but this is also what the Jewish people continue to reenact every year when they celebrate Passover. Each of these four promises represent one of the four cups of wine that they drink during pa- Passover meal. They drink from their glasses of wine. Each time they drink from their cup, it represents one of these promises. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. And so when you think about the Last Supper where Jesus is with his disciples and he lifts the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the third cup. It's the third cup he picks up, which is the cup of redemption. He's saying, I will redeem you. There, there is like so much we miss, right, as Westerners and Americans. But, but this is what's going on here. It's marriage language. It's proposal language. If you're taking notes, I want you to look at this with me for, for a second. When, when the Jewish people remember the Passover every year, they're remembering the time that God freed them and also the time when he proposed to them. That's what's going on. Every year as Passover comes around, this is, this is what they're remembering. The time when God said, I will be your God and you will be my people when he proposed to them in Exodus chapter 6. So um, it's, it, it's, it's a really big deal. Let's get back to the story. John 14. So Jesus, when he sits down to have a meal with his disciples, not only is this the Last Supper, but this is also a Passover meal, and they are sharing this meal together. And this is the context of John chapter 14, where Jesus makes this shocking claim about himself. This isn't just any meal that they're eating. It's a specific meal in which they they are remembering the time when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and when he proposed to them as a people. So to set it up, John 14... The disciples in John 14, they are all in on Jesus. You know, like they've left everything. I mean, you realize that, right? I mean, like they have given up everything to follow Jesus. I mean, these disciples, they have left businesses. They have left homes. They have left clear succession plans. I mean, some of these guys, they were in the family business already. They were fishermen. They left clear succession plans that like this business will be their business. Some of these guys, man, their, their daddies were carpenters, and they're, they're going to be a carpenter. They've left clear succession plans. They've left it all. And, and these disciples, they, they go all in on Jesus. In their heads, they're thinking that this man is going to be the one who will overthrow Roman dominion and who will establish the kingdom that the Old Testament talks about, that the Old Testament promised. And so they are quite literally risking their lives. They're risking their livelihoods. They're list, risking their reputation they're, they're, I mean, absolutely risking their life on Jesus being the one to do this. And all of a sudden, after everything is going well for quite a while, all of a sudden Jesus just starts talking about leaving. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to be here all that longer, you know. He's saying, you know, I, I'm going I'm, I'm to leave you guys here, here in a little bit. You know, I, I only got a little bit more time with you. And as you can imagine, the disciples are freaking out. Yeah, I said that. 
right? They are, they are, they are confused. They're like, what is going on? Jesus, like, I thought you were here to like overthrow. I thought you were here to like establish this kingdom. I thought you were the Messiah. Like, let's go back to those conversations. And he is talking about leaving. He's like, I'm only gonna be here a little bit longer. Pretty soon I won't be with you. I'm I'm gonna go. And and disciples, they are they are freaked out. They have they have given up much. And now they're wondering, like, hey, hey, did we did we miss it? And that is the context that gets us to John chapter 14, verse 1. And I want to give this to you quickly. Jesus says this in John 14. He looks to them as they are confused, as they are freaking out, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. I said this last week, but I just love how Jesus is very patient. I love how, how, how tender he is in, in moments of doubt, it seems like, uh, how he just seems to get it and to understand kind of, kind of just our inability at times to just have great faith. Uh, it, 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 he's very tender when we have at least some faith. Like, I mean, he just, he just is tender here with these guys. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Like, I realize you're freaking out. Trust in God. Trust in me, too. In verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he says, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, what? I will come back. And take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, we don't understand this, this exchange at first glance. We don't, we, don't, we don't get this at first glance. I mean, none of us do. Because of modern day language, cultural differences, and, and, and all of that. But in the first century, these scriptures right here, this is a marriage proposal. This is marriage language. Jesus, I want, you, I want you to remember the setting. This is the Last Supper, okay? Jesus is, is, is at the Passover meal, and he is picking up different elements on the table. He's picking up this, this cup, and they're drinking it. Picking up this cup, and they're drinking it. They're remembering the promises of, of, of the Old Testament. of God, I will bring you out. I will make you my people. I will redeem you, right? He, they're, they're, he's picking up all these different elements on the Passover table. He's picking up the bread. He, he, he's, he's dipping his hand in the herbs, like the bitter herbs, to, to remember slavery. Right? Him, him and Judas, they do all this. And And he's reminding them through this meal of God's proposal to Israel. And then he's using language to say to his disciples here that he is going to his father's house and he will prepare a place for them and a place for us. Now, there are three, three parts, three main parts to the Jewish marriage ceremony. I want to give these to you here. You can just throw that up on the screen. There are three major parts to the Jewish marriage ceremony. There is the proposal. Okay? This is the proposal. This is where, this is where a groom... Uh, finds a bride that he likes, and then the father of the groom and the father of the bride have to agree on a bride price, right? Come on, how many of y'all like that, right? They, they agree on this bride price, okay? The, the father of the groom actually has to, to give, pay a price to the father of the bride. They then become legally married, but before they consummate the marriage, the, 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 the waiting period has to happen where the, the groom returns back to his father's house with his father, and he goes in and actually builds a room off of his father's house for him and his wife to live in, for their, for their family to begin. And so this is called the waiting period. And, and the groom, he leaves during the waiting period with this promise to his bride that I, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to my father's house. And so this is what, this is what happened in their culture. 
They, 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 they would become married, even legally married, but, but they would wait to, to, to kind of join themselves together until the groom had, had gone back to his father's house, had built this, this home for him and his, and his wife and their family on the side of their, his dad's house. And when that was done, he would return. And this, this could last a while. The waiting period could be a while. It could be a long while. I mean, the bride is like, I sure hope he meant what he said, you know? I mean, he, he, I mean it could take, there wasn't like a given like time of how long this was going to take, and eventually the, the, the groom would return for the retrieval, which is the third part of the Jewish marriage ceremony. The retrieval is when the groom brings the bride to the father's house, and then the marriage is joined. They're consummated at that point. This is, this is the retrieval. He's like, I've, I've gone ahead of you. I've gone to my father's house. I've prepared a place, and now I am returning. I am returning to bring you with me. I tell you all that because I want you to understand that in the last week of Jesus' life on earth, from, from John chapter 12 to John chapter 19, he is literally proposing to his followers. Even though he's been telling them this, even though he's been dropping hints all throughout the entire last week of his life, I mean, Jesus, Jesus tells a parable about a king who gives an announcement for a wedding about his son. He gives that during the final week. He tells another parable about bridesmaids who are waiting for a groom to return. He gives that parable. He is at the Last Supper. I mean, going, like I told you, already going through the different elements of the Passover meal, which represent God's proposal to Israel. And then he just like flat out says it in John 14. He says, he says like, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Throw those scriptures back up for a second. John 14, 1 through 3. He says, he says I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving you, but I'm not, I'm not leaving you forever. I'm leaving you right now because I'm going ahead of you to my father's house. I, I'm preparing a place, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. He flat out tells them what he's doing, that he's proposing to them. This is wild because Jesus is mirroring what God did in Exodus in the Old Testament. He's mirroring this with people in the New Testament telling them like, look, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. It is, it is unthinkable. This is shocking that Jesus would do something like this. So go to, it goes on to verse 4 here. Jesus looks at them and he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, gotta love Thomas. Thomas said to him, uh, nope. <laughs> sure don't know where, where you're going. Uh, he says, he says uh, Lord, um, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I, I mean, Thomas should be praised for his honesty, don't you think? Like, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I, I like to, like, look at, look at all the disciples, and a lot of us like to think, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Peter, you know, or, like, I'm, I'm you know, whoever. And, and like, man, I am more Thomas than anybody, you know? I, like, let's just be real in this room right now. I am way more Thomas than any other character in the entire New Testament. I'm like, whoa, did you really, Jesus, did you really say what I think you said? Like, can you get me some clarification for a moment here? So, uh, I am way more Thomas than anybody else in the entire New Testament. So, uh, Thomas, that, that's, that has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just want you to know, <laughs> like, where I'm at, right? So, Thomas's focus here in, in John chapter 14, verse 4, his focus is on knowing where he is going. He wants to know where, where they're going. He wants to know the destination. In his mind, if he knew the goal of where they were going, 
where they were headed, then he could figure out how to get there. Tell me, tell me the end. Tell me the destination. Tell me the goal. Where are we headed? Where are you going to be? And I will figure out how to get to where we need to go. If you're taking notes, look at this thought with me. The disciples are focused on the end. Jesus is focused on the means. On the means. So we get this language, right? Because we know, we know the end. We use, we use this language now. Like the end is, you know, the result. The end is the destination. The end is the goal. We use language like this, like the end doesn't always justify the means, or sometimes we think that the end does justify the means, right? And so we talk like this all the time. Well, the end is the goal. It's the destination. It's the purpose. It's the what of life. It's the ultimate meaning. It's, it's, it's what these guys are looking for. It's what we're all looking for. The means is the way to get to the goal. It's the way to get to that destination. It's the language you know, that we use, the work we do, the character that we develop throughout our life. It's the means. It's the way of getting to the end. Listen to me. The disciples in this story are focused on the end. Jesus is focused on the means. He's always focused on the means. He's way more focused on the means. He's way more focused on the journey than the destination. Like, he cares about where you end up, but he cares about how you get to where you're going. And this is the context. Then we get to the famous scripture here in John 14, 6, where Jesus answers and he says, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is focused on the means. He's not focused on the end. He's not focused on the end. Now, I want to just give you some thoughts here. So, so, so the, the, this, is, this is a shocking claim that he is making. Jesus is contrasting himself to, um, to anything from the old covenant that, that they would have thought led them to the Father. He's contra- contrasting himself to anything from the old covenant that, that, that they would have used to relate to God. Anything like, you know, sacrifices, the temple, ceremonial, you know, cleansing, things they would have had to do to kind of, in their mind, get to God or, or, or get closer to God, to be made right, to come near to God. Jesus is contrasting himself to all of the old, cust- old customs, the old covenant ways. He's telling them this. He's saying there is nowhere else to look. And so for thousands of years, these people have had to come every year to do this, this, this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. I mean, every year. This is like their, what they do. They, they have had to to ceremonially cleanse themselves if they ever came, became unclean. They've had to travel to a physical building that supposedly housed the presence of God, the temple. Jesus is contrasting himself to all of that. And he's telling them, look, there is nowhere else to look. There is nowhere you need to look or can look to find the true path to God. He is telling them that I am the only way to God. These sacrifices, they serve their purpose, but they, 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 don't, they don't fulfill everything. These sacrifices, they, they were temporary. They did, they did something for a while, but they didn't ever make you fully clean or fully pure. The temple, it, it was meant to be there for a temporary purpose. He says, I am the way. All of this stuff doesn't matter anymore. All this stuff, don't look to these things anymore. Look to me, he offers what Israel looked for and needed, he, what they looked for and needed, and he replaces it all, all of these prior things, he replaces them 
as these things that are set up as like temporary means by which man relates to God. Like he, he, he replaces them. He's like these are all, he, he quite literally is saying like these are all temporary paths, temporary ways, temporary means to get to God. And he says, I am the way. I am replacing all of that. That is not the path to God. I am the path to God. Look at this again one more time. John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, the context is the Last Supper. The context is the Passover meal where they're remembering the time when God brought them out of slavery and when he proposed to them. He, he is doing, this, this comes on the heels of him, you know, really, really, you know, revealing his cards all week long. Parable about, about marriage, par- another parable about brides, you know, I mean, like, he's just, he's doing all of this, and he, and he flat out tells them he's going to prepare a house for them, and he says this, this, this is proposal language, and you know what Jesus is really saying in this, in this right here? Look at this thought with me, he's saying only the groom can get you to the Father's house. He's saying only the, only the groom can get you to the Father's house. He's saying, like, it's nobody else's job. Jesus is communicating, like, he's saying, it is, it is my job to get you to the Father's house. It's, it's nobody else's responsibility but mine. He wants to take you to the Father's house, everybody. He's not kicking people out. He's not telling them how, how wrong they are. He, he's, not, he's, not, he's not going around, like, just, you know, with this, this all these, like, like offensive, exclusive claims to just, just for the purpose of, you know, like kicking these people out and accepting these people in. That's not what he's doing here at all. He's saying, like, it is my job to get you to where you want to go. You want to get to the Father. Again, first century Judaism, they want to get to the Father. He's saying, you want to get to the Father. I am the one who's supposed to get you there. Only the groom can get you to the Father's house. He's saying this. He's saying, when you know the groom... When you follow the groom, you end up at the Father's house. Once you know the way, it will lead you to the Father's house. And the way is not just a road. He says, I am the way. When you know the way, it will lead you to the Father's house. You see, the end for the Christian The end is uh, really God's work of salvation. We view that as like the destination. We view that as like the end, like heaven, the kingdom of God, right, is the end. Salvation that is understood as comprehensive, intricate, personal. Salvation that is the work of God that restores the world and us to wholeness. God's work actually complete in our lives and in our world that's the end. And the means? It's just one word, right? It's Jesus. It's the means. It's the path. It's the way. Pure and simple. If we want to participate in the end, the salvation, the kingdom of God, we must do it the way that is appropriate to that end. I think if there's anything like I could hope for today, 
One is that you just understand the scripture differently than maybe you thought than you, than you ever have. But I, I think that if I could hope for one thing is like you'd walk out of here and you would you would just just hear like the heart of Jesus in this statement to take you to his father's house. To do all the work required. To go before you and to go before me to prepare a way and to come back and get us. A lot of people trip up on this scripture, John 14, 6, because it just seems so offensive. But if they actually understood the heart of Jesus here to do whatever it takes to get them to his father's house, I think it would disarm so many people. Maybe some of us. Maybe some of us watching online here this morning. And I think that this is why we must embrace the scandal of the gospel. We embrace it. We don't run from it. We don't apologize for it. We, we don't try to like, you know, explain it away and say, I, I don't know, like, you know, we'll get to that stuff later, but like, just know Jesus loves you. you know, we don't need to sugarcoat. We embrace the scandal of the gospel. And then we share it with a world that desperately needs it. That desperately needs it. Would you stand with me here this morning? I wonder for you, what decisions are you making in your life right now where you're having to choose between God's way and your way? I wonder what, what choices exist in your life. I wonder if you find yourself at all in the tension between your way and God's way. Like, which path are we going to take? What are we going to do here? And right now in this place, I just, I just want you to just bow your heads with me for a moment. It needs to be God's way. Church, like, it needs to be God's way. It's time to just give up. It's time to just surrender. It's time to just, like, accept the reality that there is, there is absolutely no other way worth trying to follow. Oftentimes, like, we just can, we can just try it. We try to, like, actually walk on these, what we think are parallel paths, but they're not parallel. They, they go in opposite directions. What decisions, what choices, what, what, what things are happening in your life right now where you're making decisions between your way and God's way? And if you're here today, we have heads bowed in this room, eyes closed in this room today, and you would just, you would just be bold enough to raise your hand and, and, and just say, you know, Pastor Jordan, today is it. I need to get, it's, it's, it's all about Jesus, his way. I, I need to get on the path. I need, I need to stop. I need to stop compromising here or compromising there. I'm tired of, of, of deciding between my way and his way. And today you're saying like, it's, it's going to be all Jesus. Could I, could I just see your hands? If, if, if that's you, you just want to say it's all Jesus from here on out. It's all Jesus from here on out. There's no more compromise. There's no more doing it my way. Like, like, you would say today, I accept the proposal. I, Jesus, I accept the proposal. Right now in this room, wherever you're at, whatever life looks like for you, 
whatever the challenges are in your life, whatever it looks like, whatever the past has been is in the past. And today, Father, we come before you with hands raised, hearts open, and we say we accept the proposal. We say yes to your proposal in this place today right now, God. I pray that you would just wake up our hearts to you, to your love, to pursue us in a way that no one has ever pursued us before. God, we say no to the temporary. We say no to the things that really do not satisfy. And we say yes to who you are, to your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.